102.5 FM, KXSFLP San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. You're tuned in to Spark, informing minds, inspiring ideas, igniting innovation. Let the conversation sink into your soul. This is Kelly Marlowe, host of Spark. According to a Harvard study, over the next two decades, more than 27.7 million people will join the 50 and over age group. Most of this increase will be among the population of aged 65 and over. The number of people over 65 years of age who are working has doubled. As the population ages, more people will be encountering ageism. It isn't a topic that's commonly talked about, and it is as important as racism or sexism. What can we do to address ageism? Today, I'm talking with Ashton Applewhite, the author of This Chair Rocks, A Manifesto Against Ageism. She was on the PBS annual list of 50 influencers on aging. She will share what we can do about ageism now. Thank you for joining me on Spark Today, Ashton. My pleasure. Can you explain what exactly ageism is? The dictionary definition is prejudice and stereotyping on the basis of age. Basically, we are being ageist anytime we make an assumption about a person or a group of people based on how old we think they are. And it it can be too young. You know, you're too young for that. How could you possibly know what you're doing? As well as too old, although in our very youth-centric culture, older people bear the brunt. You have said nobody's born ageist, but starts at an early childhood, around the same time attitudes toward race and gender start to form. What is happening? Well, I'm not a child psychologist, but a newborn baby is pretty much a blank slate. I've read research that shows that if a child sees something that's, um, you know, a baby that's very different, they might cry and, you know, an alarm because it's alien to them. But we learn how to value what we see and what we should be afraid of and what we should gravitate towards from the older people around us. And it happens very young. And when in the case of ageism, most of the messages around aging are negative or sort of benign, you know, the, the, the placid grandma or rocking in her chair, or that aging is associated with negative things like frailty or stuff like the Wicked Witch. I mean, don't get me started on Disney movies. And when there, there are all these negative messages from the culture and from family and school and society, because that is the dominant narrative, unless we stop to question them, it just becomes part of our worldview. But it seems like that narrative also dominates in the older age groups as well. Well, exactly. And one of the many things that surprised me when I started to work on this was that older people can be the most ageist of all, which seemed counterintuitive. But if you have had a lifetime of being bombarded by these messages and never thought to question them, which is the case for most of us. You know, we just we we haven't gotten there yet. You know, we are we are a little further along in understanding racism and sexism and other forms of prejudice. We are just beginning to do so on a culture-wide level around ageism. And unless you stop to question it, it becomes part of our identity. And that is 
really bad for us because what, what happens is we start to ascribe negative things to our age as we get older, and it's very easy for them to become self-fulfilling prophecies. I mean, my knee hurts. Oh, it must be because I'm so old. Well, does your other knee hurt? It's just as old. Is your back really tired because you're a certain age? I mean, I'm just making an example of aches and pains or, you know, your, your social circle shrinking. Well, have you made an effort to reach out? We have this reflective tendency to blame negative things on old age and likewise ascribe all positive things to feeling young when, in fact, what we usually mean when we say, I feel so young, is I feel healthy, I feel invigorated, I feel sexy, I feel engaged. And we can feel all those things in later life, That just as we can feel lonely and incompetent and invisible when we are 13. So it doesn't help that the older population is self-fulfilling ageism, because then they're setting the example back. It doesn't help anyone in the culture when anyone else in the culture is in the grips of prejudice, whether it's that older people are burdens, let's say, or that have these cultural stereotypes. Anyone who is in the grips of them does the culture at large a huge disservice. What are your least favorite stereotypes about older people? Is that older people are alike. And it's that idea is reinforced by the phrase the elderly, which I seriously dislike. No one identifies as elderly. And it implies that when we reach a certain age, whenever that magic uh, moment is, so we fall into this group of old people. And in fact, the longer we live, the more different from one another we become. If you think every newborn is, of course, unique, but 17-year-olds have a lot more in common developmentally, physically, socially than 37-year-olds who are likewise way more alike than 57-year-olds and so on. Older someone is, the less their age says about what they are interested in or capable of mentally, physically, socially. I would put that idea in everyone's head. And um, How could anything possibly be true of all people from a certain place or uh, with a certain skin color? But they are especially ill-informed when it comes to aging um, and older people because we are so diverse. But why are we so afraid to age? Is it because we know we will be treated differently or worse? There are a number of reasons, and it also depends on, of course, your culture. You know, there are in indigenous cultures and in some African-American communities, their older members are, are venerated and respected. So these values are, are culturally constructed. We make them up. One argument that people make about ageism is that it is somehow natural, air quotes around natural. It's a very suspect word I have learned, because people associate it with dying. It is absolutely true that older people are reminders of mortality, but dying is a discrete biological event that happens at the end of all this living. I'm 68. There may be millions of people who look at me and think I'm ancient, but they don't look at me and think I'm dying. So I don't think it is excusable or natural in that sense. It sounds like it's cultural, and our culture suffers from ageism. Yeah, I mean, there are two inevitable bad things about getting older. People you've known all your life are going to die, and some part of your body is going to fall apart. And those are real losses. We worry about running out of money, ending up alone, um, getting sick. Those fears are legitimate and real. But 
the sort of overarching point is that our fears are way out of proportion to the reality, and the fear itself is bad for us. Studies from around the world over and over show that people get happier after they finish this sort of trough of midlife, when you have maximum career responsibilities, responsibilities for kids, responsibilities for parents. You're supposed to be saving for retirement. It's a very midlife is, is actually most people's low points. And if we can step out and see both sides of the story. And frankly, look at the evidence all around us that older people are in the world in all kinds of interesting ways. It's true that some, from not for all of us, about 20% of the population escapes cognitive decline entirely. And think about it. You know some of these really sharp older people. We all do. So open your eyes and look at and trust what you yourself see. Most of us lose some speed in retrieval, you know, remembering the name of the movie you went to with What's-Her-Name last week. But there's a theory that came out of computation, computer science, that it's because we're sifting through more data. That's why it takes more time. We have more to depend on, which is arguably a reason why older people are, are so valuable in the workforce because we have lots more experience and interactions with people that we can draw on to shape a really informed and balanced response. The point is not, it sucks not to be able to remember the name of the movie. It's really annoying, but that's all it is. You will find your slippers. You will find your glasses. That's likely as bad as it's going to get. But when, because the culture barrages us with these terrifying messages about dementia and Alzheimer's, you think that's the first sign. Next week, I'm not going to remember my name. And by, by Christmas, I won't know where my car is. That fear makes you more vulnerable to exactly what you fear. There is a study out of Yale that shows that people with, I like to say, fact rather than fear-based attitudes towards aging are less likely to develop Alzheimer's even if they have the gene that predisposes them to the disease. So the very best thing you can do to build up resistance to, to these things that, we, you know, when we do fear them, it could happen. You know, physical frailty is real, but is to educate yourself about what aging really involves. That is, is nowhere near as scary as the image out there, you know, promulgated by the media and by all the companies that profit when aging is medicalized, when natural transitions are made um, shameful or treated as problems that we need to try and cure. Well, it's interesting that you point out the memory stereotype because kids forget all the time. That's a, that's a line in my TED Talk. I say I stopped calling it a senior moment when I realized that when I couldn't find the car keys in high school, I didn't call it a junior moment. That's a perfect example, Kelly. So that, And that's a very simple thing each of us can do, is simply when we blame something on age, stop and think for a minute, did that actually have anything to do with age? And odds are, it didn't. Well, it's funny because parents are always reminding their kids 10 times a day to do this, do that. It's probably worse than what an adult or somebody who's older is going through. But yet, it's okay, because they're kids. If you're older and you yes. forget something, it's like, it's because you're older. And there's also, we, we live in the U.S., we have this extreme validation of this ideal of independence. If I could take one word out of the entire conversation around aging, is this idea that you need to become and stay independent. No one is independent ever. We obviously need things for more children. We need help throughout life. You need help if you have little kids. I mean, I feel like that's when 
I needed the most help from the world. And we then, as we age and become less capable physically, we need more help. We are interdependent from childhood on. Disability communities have this glorious model of interdependence, of ways in which partly because mainstream society fails them, and sometimes put their, puts their lives at risk in doing so, of depending on each other, mutual aid. And that, frankly, is a much more realistic, beautiful, comforting, practical, ideal. Most importantly, it's stripped of shame. There should be no shame in asking for help. As we all know, giving, helping someone feels really good. These are two-way transactions. But it could be because of what we're teaching our children. And they expect parents then to be independent, to be free from them and not expect anything from them. I can't help think that if you tell your kids that over time is still an independent relationship, maybe they would expect that versus like my parents shouldn't need me. They should be able to take care of themselves yeah. and their jobs take care of me. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, I, that's a good question. I actually think looking at this in terms of swapping out the binary of dependent and independent for interdependent solves a lot of the problem. In general, binaries are bad. We do not go from mobile to immobile, right? We, you, you know, you raise your kids, hopefully, so that they can go out in the world on their own terms. You, know, you, you want them to be able to make their way in the world, but you, I think, want them to know that you, and I don't mean to really to make this about biological family either. It's about any kind of community. And I think, you know, the queer community, a lot of uh, young people now older were t- turned away by their own family. People with disabilities create these fantastic communities of care where Someone needs help of some kind on Tuesday and someone else needs something else on Wednesday. And it is this beautiful interdependence. So the nature of the help we need and the amount of it is going to change. Some of that's going to be welcome. Some of it's not going to be. But if we don't look, when did mom or dad become dependent? But what did they start needing? What kind of assistance did they need help with? And how did you provide it? And what did they provide for you in return? Because it's not just we we have this very binary idea of one person does all the giving and the other person does all the receiving. And caregiving is a beautiful, precious, important part of being human. What makes it really hard in this society is going it alone without support of all sorts, financial and, and social supports and subsidies. But, you know, we would like to be able to, to care for the people we love, if, even if it's not our sole full-time unpaid, unappreciated job. It's one of the reasons it's unappreciated is because of this really corrosive notion that you should be able to do it yourself from birth to death, practically. Agree. People don't realize that it is insulting to say that you look great for your age, we don't say this to you yeah. people. How do we change no, this attitude? No, you don't. The idea is here is to leave off the, the for your age part. Um, I have sort of a snappy answer to that, that when someone says, you look great for your age, you say, you look great for your age too. And then there's this awkward silence. And they have to think about why something they intended as a compliment doesn't feel like a compliment. But it's like telling, I think, uh, you know, famously, someone told Obama that he was very articulate for a black man. You're so good at leading a company for a woman. The point is, in an ideal rainbow, unicorn, fairy-filled world, 
we would judge each person for who they are as an individual. We would magically have time and an open mind to assess them, find out what they're good at, find out what they're interested in, find out what they might need help with, and see each person as an individual stripped of the assumptions. We all have no judgment about what gender we think they are, what color they are, their age, and just come to each individual with an open mind. Life, unfortunately, doesn't allow us an infinite amount of time to get to know each person we're going to deal with, but it's very helpful to consider the bias that you have. Again, we all have it, and to attempt to be open-minded. Not judge the person by the age, that the person one is not going to be able to bowl very well or do anything very well, but to embrace them and bring them hopefully into what you're doing and especially in the workforce. Yes, and, and meet them, you know, find out what they're doing. I mean, the, the examples you just gave is probably exemplify my, my second least favorite stereotype, which I realized you were calling out as a stereotype, which is that old people are incompetent. I couldn't bowl when I was 14. I can't bowl now. You mentioned the workforce. Not one stereotype about older workers holds up under scrutiny. Of course, we can continue to learn new things. We've known that for decades, that the brain continues to be, it's neuroplasticity is the term. We continue to be able to forge new new synapses and be able to learn things lifelong. And let me tell you, if the ability to put food on the table depended on me mastering nuclear physics, God help me, I bet I could learn it, right? We, we need to be motivated. We need to be trained. And we need to have a reason to learn these things. And then no matter whether you're 15 or 105. Well, you said something that was so true, and that is companies aren't adaptable and creative because their employees are young. They're adaptable and creative despite it. And I thought that was such a good point. And I would actually put it slightly differently now because the way I framed it exemplifies something that is so tempting and is really to be avoided, which is to put things in terms of old versus young. Right. That implies that if they got rid of all the young people, things would be just nifty. It's really, really important to avoid old versus young thinking. The real point there that I wish I had made is that the best teams are not made up of all young people or all old people. They are age diverse, just like they are diverse in terms of the abilities and ethnicities and sexual orientations, et cetera, et cetera, of people on teams, because people bring more perspectives if they have more different kinds of life experience. I mean, between tech and Hollywood, it's kind of neck and neck as to which industry in the U.S. is the most egregiously ageist. Uh, Old people built the internet. There are lots of older people who are incredibly technically savvy, and there are lots of younger people who are not. That is another ageist trope. And we lose so much the the American economy and in countless ways when we force older people out of the workforce and don't acknowledge the many ways in which older people contribute as a whole. I mean, literally billions of dollars in uh, work that is not paid and that is undervalued. I mean, most caregiving of older people is done by other older people who look in on each other, right? That is worth billions of dollars. And that's just one example. Going back to the Yale study, you mentioned that a growing body of research shows attitudes toward aging affect our minds and body functioning at the cellular level. Can you talk about that body of research? 
Sure. You should know that my website is thischairrocks.com. And if you go to the blog, click on blog or thischairrocks.com slash blog, it is searchable by subject. So you can search for dementia or psychology, whatever you feel like and find, you know, I've been thinking out loud on that blog for over a decade now. People, the media usually frames this as people with more positive attitudes towards aging fare better. I don't like the word positive because it implies a sort of happy talk or let's just talk about the uplifting things and not address the scary things. And again, it's really important to address the full picture, including the things that worry us. But our, but our view of aging is so uniformly negative, right? So let's look at both sides of the story. Our view of aging is so negative that it fills us with disproportionate fears. The data shows study after study, it's really interesting. The World Health Organization just commissioned a meta study, which is a study of all the studies out there, show that attitudes towards aging affect how our minds and bodies function at the cellular level. People with a fact-based attitude, in other words, that have actually have more open-mindedness when they look at older people and have educated themselves about what aging actually involves, People with a fact rather than fear-based attitude towards aging walk faster. They heal quicker, even from severe disability. They have better handwriting, which is a surprisingly good indicator of physical function. They live longer, an average of seven and a half years longer. It's a bigger gain than from stopping smoking or losing weight, not being obese, which is pretty interesting. And I think I mentioned already the fact that it shows that it, this fact-based attitude confers protection against Alzheimer's, even among people who are genetically predisposed to the disease. So I'd really like that fact to get out there. Again, Alzheimer's is a terrifying disease, but the fear of Alzheimer's, that thing that when you can't find your keys, you, I bet I'm getting dementia, that fear is without base, almost certainly, and that fear makes you more vulnerable to exactly what you fear. The scientists who did that study, their hypothesis is that it is the stress and anxiety of managing the fears, which is a function of living in an ageist world, not educating yourself about your own internalized bias and the role we all play, but the role we play in our own attitudes towards this, how bad that can be for us and how just learning more about about aging and the forces that ageism would be the social surround and the psychological surround that frames our attitudes is really probably the best thing you can do for your health in later life. Okay, and how does this tie to universal embrace of age equity that you you are advocating for? Oh, well, I like the term equity across the lifespan because I would like to live in a world where young people are accorded respect, um, where I don't think you get bonus points for just being old. You deserve more respect or a special you know, seat at the table. You might deserve a seat if your legs are wobbly, but so might a younger person with a disability. So back to judging each person you know, on their own merits. So I really like the idea of equity across the lifespan being that our society could afford the kind of support people need at every point from birth to death, because we are living much longer than ever before. And this is a permanent global demographic trend. We still have this very sort of antique idea that you go to school and then you have kids and work in the middle and then you are retired. That doesn't make sense 
at all anymore because the work is changing, right? You don't work for the same company if you ever did from birth till retirement. Very few of us, God knows, have a secure pension to retire on. Even if you do have a pension, you if you retire at, at 65, you probably have 30 more years to be in the world in pretty good shape. It doesn't make sense to, to stop working or to be forced out. I think we're going to see a world where people take longer to figure out what they're going to do, to explore things, perhaps are not working full-time when they have very little children at home. Wouldn't that be nice? And then hopefully are supported to stay in the workforce much longer, but but ideally in ways that we could transition out of full-time employment. Most older people would like to keep a hand in, but they don't want to work nine to five. And maybe even nine to five is going to go be a, an artifact. I mean, more and more of us but especially younger people, are hostage to the gig economy. So these are supports that we need when we are young, trying to get started, when we are a little bit older with children. As I already mentioned, midlife is a term of enormous stress with a lot of caregiving and career stuff, and then uh, old age itself. So how do we create a world for these longer lives that involves not incidentally, by the way, retraining, 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 teaching people throughout life, long life learning, to continue to pick up the skills that we all are going to need to remain productive and purposeful and engaged right to the end. It seems like part of the problem tied to ageism is marketing that we see of young people all the time. And since 65-plus age group will be the largest population in the upcoming decade, should marketing be more reflective of this population? <laughs> well, it should be, yes, um, since older people have more money. And, and oh, I mean, the most egregious example, I think it's older women. I don't remember the proportion, but um, older women, women buy most stuff for the household. We spend more stuff, more money on clothes. No one tries to sell stuff to older women. One reason I have to point out is that older women don't want to shop in a place where older women shop, if you know what I mean, because of our own internalized ageism. We're like, oh, that would make me look old. Everything's going to be frumpy. I don't want to go there because it will make me look old. And that is internalized ageism. Ageism takes root in denial of the fact that we are aging. It's more and more expensive if you can afford facelifts and all of that stuff. And so huge class bias sets us up to fail, and it's not healthy. We have a president who's 74, and we may have a president who's 78. Shouldn't this be encouraging to see? I see it as neutral. You know, I think this is a perfect example of where, where it's important to see the person and strip their age out of it. Age is real, and they are indeed older, but if you're a wealthy white man in America, you have access to Cracker Jack healthcare, as they have had. Science shows that they are both likely to live at least another decade. Their health is relevant, and I think everyone should have a physical performed by a reputable doctor and with the results made public, obviously. It is relevant. I would never say deny your age. It's important to say how old we are. It's a legitimate and important piece of our identity. But to question the connotations that we attach to it. Candidates for political office should be judged on the basis of what they say and what they do. 
their age and their abilities have nothing to do with it. I don't like it when um, either Trump or Biden are attacked in terms of their purported physical frailty or cognitive incapacity, because that's ableist, means prejudiced against people with disabilities. And every time we insult someone on the basis of being too old, air quotes, or too fuzzy-headed, we do so at the expense of every older person, those people who are impaired and those who are not, and every person with a disability. And that's wrong because we reinforce this association of age with incapacity and the idea that someone who has a deficit of some sort is not equipped to be utterly valid and important member of society. So I have lots of issues with both political candidates, but it has to do with their actions and their ideology, not how old they are. Great point. Wrapping up, what is the best way for us to counter ageism on a daily basis? I have one tip, which is a useful thing to say when someone makes an ageist comment or says something that a good litmus test is. If someone makes a comment on the basis of age that they would never make or that would never go unremarked if it was on the basis of skin color or gender, then it's probably agent. What we want to do is provoke the person to reflect on why they said that, the way I do with my semi-comic, you know, you look great for your age too, because then they have to stop and reflect. And you don't want to jump on them and say, that's how ages, because we all get dig in and get defensive. Another really good thing you can do is think about how you use the words young and old. Tendency to use young as um, a placeholder for insert positive attribute and old for cranky or slow, tired. And we can feel cranky, slow, and tired at any age. And we can feel vigorous and excited and energetic at any point in later life. Another habit, the still habit. Oh, he's still working. She's still driving. If it's an ordinary activity, this is a hard habit to break. I still catch myself making it. Think about whether what you said is or is not ages. Take the still out. And if you're feeling really energetic, Consciousness raising is the tool that catalyzed the women's movement that we could come together and do something about. And that experience, that sort of moment of going, oh, it's not me. It's not my fault. It's because of the culture in which I live. So when you realize, oh, there are these forces at work, that is empowering. And on my website and also um, on a site called Old School, oldschool.info, is a clearinghouse of free vetted anti-ageism resources. The only thing that costs money on the site is books, but there are videos, there are workbooks, there is a free downloadable guide to starting a consciousness raising guide around age bias called Who Me? Ages. Thank you for sharing your insights and thank you for joining me on Spark today, Ashton. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kelly.